So welcome to the podcast and today it is the second episode of our diversity series. Now last time we looked at unconscious bias, this time we're getting our teeth into an issue that is more taboo and that is why we're comfortable talking about gender in the workplace but not race. Now in 10 years time, nearly 20% of the UK workforce will be black, Asian or of minority ethnic origin. But we have to ask ourselves how well they'll do at work compared to their white colleagues because right now a third of black employees feel that discrimination is undermining their career progression. That is according to the CIPD's own research. Today we're going to hear some views recorded at a recent CIPD forum where a range of experts got together to talk about BAME at work. And it's worth saying at this point, that forum was conducted under the Chatham House rules and the clips we're going to play you, we recorded them afterwards, which is why we're attaching names to them. Now, I've got two guests with me to discuss the clips. That's David D'Souza, CIPD's own membership director, and June Sarpong, MBE, TV presenter and author of a great new book called Diversify. Thank you for being with us. Uh, June, I, as I said to you earlier, I started reading a book last week. I'm really enjoying it. And I was struck by a term that you've coined, which is the others. Mm. Do you want to explain that? Yes, of course. So the reason why I decided to look at the various uh, disenfranchised groups that I look at in the book and to call them other was because I think a lot of the time we use quite extreme language when it comes to this issue. And I think most people are in the middle which is that they're comfortable with people that remind them of themselves. And everybody has an other. Um, and so I think if we can look at it in, in these sorts of terms, then we take the shame out of it. And that way people can be honest and address their unconscious bias, um, address where their limiting beliefs are, and then hopefully start to change as individuals. And I think that's really important because when we use really extreme, extreme words like racism, which let's be real, does exist. I'm not one of these people that thinks it doesn't exist, it's real. But I would say, I would categorize racism as, you know, some of the people that we saw marching at Charlottesville. Do you see what I mean? Sure. It, it, that is what I class racism Overt as. Racism. Overt racism. I think most people are somewhere in the middle, which is just, they discriminate in a way that, which is unintentional and in a way that they don't want to. But we've all been conditioned to think a certain way. So unless you are somebody that's exceptional, chances are you have these sorts of beliefs. Well, the book, as I say, is interesting. It's obviously, it's a wide sphere. You cover age, power, class. It's a, it's a really Disability. <laughs> it is a really interesting read. For the purposes of today, we're just talking about BAME. But I think you'll be, you'll be interested in the clips we've got. And the voices you'll hear are Pamela Hutchinson. She's from Bloomberg. Diversity consultant Frank Douglas and HS2's Mark Lomas. Let's kick off with their thoughts on why gender seems easier to talk about than BAME. Every white man knows a white woman, which is to say that, that women are part of the C-suite's personal orbit. They go home. There's a wife, a daughter, a mother, a grandmother. At work, you know, women make up a, an increasingly larger part of, of the workforce. On the other hand, with black and Asian and ethnic minority staff, there are very few BAMEs in the professional orbit of most C-suite executives. And quite honestly, there's probably even less in their personal orbit when they go home. That creates discomfort, and that also starts enabling stereotypes. I think we find it easier to talk about 
gender rather than uh, than BAME diversity. Well, for starters, I think BAME in itself is a difficult concept to even get your head around. I mean, what does it really mean and who does it apply to? And I think we get so caught up in the language that it, we find it difficult to talk about it for fear of offending. Whereas gender, you've got male and female, and that's pretty much it. How often do you walk into a room of, of senior HR professionals and see um, a black or Asian man? Quite unlikely. You know, how often do you walk into the board and see black or Asian people represented there, if you're particularly in the sector that I'm from, which is construction, infrastructure, engineering? Um, very unlikely. So those are the reasons why we find why we find it difficult. It's because there aren't enough of those people in those rooms to normalize the presence, to normalize difference and, and, and make it easy to talk about. So Pamela says gender is easier to talk about than race, just generally easier. I mean, obviously, gender isn't the binary issue it used to be in the past, but no. it's it's perhaps less complicated than race. And it is interesting how many people... I meet, and you will meet too, who actually don't know what BAME means. Do you find that? Uh, yes. I, I think it's one of these areas where unless you step towards it, unless you express a genuine interest, and unless you care enough to do that, it can just seem rife with complicated terms. And I know that there are a number of terms that people may challenge the usage of BAME. I think the use of the word, kind of wording around other is a really interesting one because it helps you recognise that there is difference but actually makes it less jargony in some ways. But language is definitely a barrier to conversation. And anxiety about getting it wrong. Yeah, I think, yeah, and I think also one of the things that we have to be quite uh, honest about is that where race is concerned, you know, if you look at the history, um, there's been all sorts of horrific structures that have been put in place. And, And I think the problem with race per se is you also have to look at how people are conditioned. So, Uh, In Western countries, uh, white people uh, are taught to believe that they are superior to people of a different race, whether you like it or not, even if it's not overt. Just because white is the standard for normal, that means that's what you're going to get. So first of all, you're dealing with the fact that people have been conditioned to have beliefs around superiority and inferiority. And then the other piece, which is really important, particularly when we get to the men, is the fact that men of color are seen as the primary source of fear in our society. So that's another thing. So number one, without even knowing it, when you your image of a scientist, you think of scientists, you think white man. When you think of leader, you think white man. When you think of anything to do with leadership power or, or influence, you think white man. And there's a hierarchy, and perhaps next is white woman, elite white woman anyway. Um, and then it goes on and on and on, and usually people of color at the bottom of that. So if we get into the workplace, our idea of who is actually capable of running a business, of growing a company, of strategizing and so on and so on, without even realizing our idea is usually not a person of color. And I think that's why it's really important to start challenging these limiting beliefs. But we have to understand where it's coming from. Yeah, I mean, Frank's point about, you know, we all know white women. I mean, I was I was thinking about this on the train on the way here this morning, thinking, 
is there anyone in the country who doesn't know a white woman? <laughs> probably and there probably not. isn't, is there? No. I don't have the stats in that, but I'll be quite comfortable <laughs> going out on a line and saying that there isn't. And, Which and that's... is interesting, because when you think, you know, how many people do not know someone who doesn't look like them? Yeah. I mean, there'll be millions of people who yes, don't Yes, we did some recent polling on that particular issue, and what we found was uh, a third of 34% of British people uh, do not have a single friend from a different background from a different ethnic or cultural background. That's a big number. And it's probably more, actually. Organisational fit is something I wanted to talk about. And I was going to ask you, David, about this, because this has been the big thing, and HR has promoted this idea of bringing people into organisations who are right for the organisation. Has that got a role to play here, though? Because is that slightly becoming shorthand for low-risk organisations, people who are kind of like us, people like the people we've already got? If, if you do it lazily, then absolutely, that's part of the problem. I think if you do it mindfully, and if you go, actually, what are we trying to create here? We are trying to create people who are respectful of others, who want to value people's thoughts rather than their backgrounds, then actually it's a really positive thing, because that's what you can aim for in terms of fit. But if what you say is, actually, we're just like more like some of the last ones that we had... Well, you know, if you, you know, if you profile, <laughs> you know, if we did more of the same for the FTSE 100, you would end up with sure. essentially entrenching some of the problems that we know we have currently. I'm interested because obviously, June, you talk a lot about the business case for this. Mm. Some sectors of employment are better than others. And actually, I was thinking about yours on the way here, too, and thinking that the media quite a long time ago got its head around the fact that they needed non-white presenters for commercial reasons. No, I think I, as someone who works in the media, I think my industry talks a good game, but in reality... Well, that's what I mean. Because terrible. people in front of cameras, you get more diversity, but you walk into any broadcast organisation, it's a sea of white yes. middle-class people, isn't totally. it? Totally, it really is. So that was the point I was trying to make, really, that some organisations are in the foothills of understanding the commercial imperative, but they haven't actually embraced it fully. Yes, 100%. And I think also, back to um, what, David, you were saying about more of the same... I think one of the things that companies need to look at, particularly B2C businesses, is the talent pipeline. So if you know you are sourcing talent from only Russell Group universities, straight away you know what you're getting. That's more of the same. And actually maybe it's looking at new ways of... In fact, I've got a, a, an article on, about this on your blog. Um, maybe it's looking at new ways of sourcing talent. So where are we getting our talent from? And where are the groups that we haven't even tapped into and shown our industry exists? And I think that's really important for any leader, for any HR professional... It's the thing, okay, normally we, we look at Russell Group University students, normally we go to the same headhunters, et cetera, et cetera. You know what, we're going to throw that out the window and we're going to say, we want this kind of person, come and we will train you ourselves within our organisation. Because even if you have people of colour or you have people with disabilities and they've still been educated in the Russell Group system, that in itself is still kind of more of the same. So we also want diversity of thought. All right, let's let's move on to causes and, and listen to some more clips about you know, what's holding up progress. I think one of the things that hold back, holds back progress is that we're not honest. We don't have real, truthful conversations. Everyone is skirting around the issue um, because, again, because of fear of offending or being accused of being racist. And so we don't really get to the heart of the topic. The UK at its most basic is a class society. Um, and so we're much more comfortable talking about class. 
I always find it interesting whenever I read the newspaper, if there's ever a crime story or anything, the first paragraph always has the price of the person's home in the first paragraph to establish where they are in the social setting. But race is something that we just are very uncomfortable with and, and, and we don't touch it. We don't even know many um, C-suite senior executives don't know what to call black people. I mean, I've had um, CEOs ask me, do I call them black? Is it people of color? Is it colored? I even had someone say. So, so that they're not even sure how to start the conversation. So it's a muscle that they've never exercised. If you can't even start a conversation about an issue, um, then you're going to have no chance of addressing the issue. Uh, two things, transparency and accountability. You know, if you don't understand what you're doing and what the effect it has, then you've got no hope of ever changing anything. Um, some of it is willful, willful ignorance, right? I just don't want to know because then I might have to do something difficult. And when it comes around to accountability, um, accountability is not only, you know, you get rewarded for this, you get the stick for that. Um, but it's accountable for doing something different. You know, have you done the same thing for 20 years and it not, and it not worked? Well, if you have, you should do something. You should do something different because blatantly, it's not. It's not working. So for me, transparency is very key. Accountability is key. Um, and and again, those are two things at senior levels of the organization. When you talk about diversity, um, you will see a lot of people go, "Well, you're talking about positive discrimination." Then, well, no, no one's talking about that. And I think one of the primary problems when you try and have that conversation is this idea that we live in a meritocracy. You know, I'm not, actually, I'm not from the UK, I'm from Bermuda, and I've never seen a culture which is so interested in fairness and yet so completely oblivious to the fact that, that it's not a meritocracy at all. So that makes it very difficult because the logical outcome of believing it's a meritocracy is that those people who are different and don't benefit from the sponsorship, the networking, et cetera, and don't make it through aren't as good. And therefore you get into a pity model. Uh, and I think that's why it's, I think that's why the change is difficult, but transparency and accountability are key to the change. That is interesting, isn't yeah, it? Very. I mean, I think it builds on the point you were making about Rusk Group Universities. This, this idea that we kid ourselves we're living in a meritocracy. Mm, very much so. And we're not. And also, I think it's about valuing different skill sets and realizing that actually certain groups bring something else that's equally valuable to a, a first or a 2 1 or whatever. And the, the challenge about uh, admitting that it's not meritocracy is that's a threat to the people who are traditionally successful because it means they have to admit to themselves that they didn't get there purely on merit, but actually there are attributes that may be where they grew up, maybe the people that they knew, may just be the colour of their skin that are determining that level of success, and that is a threat to ego as much as anything else. It's hard That's to believe, point. isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, you can discuss this with high achievers, and it's the last thing they want to admit to. Understandably, <laughs> perfectly understandably, but it is there, isn't it? And we need to look that in the eye a bit more. Directly. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm regularly asked by our students, you know, um, how I got to be relatively successful in my career. And my answer is I was born in one of the richest countries in the world, in a home county, went to a grammar school, I'm white skinned and I'm a guy. You know, that's quite a head start compared start. to yeah. lots of people. And until we start admitting that to ourselves, it's very different to, difficult to confront the challenges that other people have. Oh, you were laughing when there was the talk about, you know, how do we refer to people who aren't white skinned? 
So go on, tell yes, us. Yes, yes. First of all, black is fine. It's nice. It's good. You can say the word black. Um, a lot of people are scared to say it. No. Well, when I was a small child, you could not say that. I know. So the language changes, doesn't No, but that was it? never black people that thought that. Black people always liked the word black. White people were scared to say the word black. So... Philip, you can say black, as can you, David. Thanks. Uh, so you've just found out you are, haven't you, love? So, yeah, hello. I, 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 <laughs> I should explain at this club. point, we're having a conversation about David's ethnicity and he's discovered some interesting things about his own background. It's fluid. It's, great. it's fluid. It's fluid. He's <laughs> ethnically fluid. Um, so where black is concerned, we can say that. Um, also, I think uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, what to call people sometimes you just have to ask as well yeah and I think ask without the nervousness and the guilt attached to it just ask so we did a series of podcasts last year about um, the experience of LGBTQ people in work and we did I think four three or four largely drawing on people's own experiences and that was exactly the same conversation it was about no one knows what to call me no one knows how to say this stuff they're terrified of using them in the wrong term and so there's this distance this chasm yeah. opens up you know, even amongst people with the best will in the world, they just are terrified of, of screwing it up. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes you just have to ask. Yeah, that was yeah. exactly what um, most of those speakers said to just front up and ask. Yeah, I think if you care enough about it, you'll find a way to have those conversations. Uh, it's, it's almost an easy get out to say, well, I wasn't quite sure of the language, I wasn't quite comfortable. So I just stayed away from it and left things as they were. If you want to be part of the solution, you have to be part of the conversation. Yeah, well, that's perfect. Actually, that, that brings us on to what we should be doing. Let's let's hear from our experts again at the forum. That's a good question. Um, you know what works? It's really easy. Make a different decision. Gosh, I don't think anything has worked so far, or else we wouldn't still be talking about this topic. A lot of organizations talk about mentoring. Um, they talk about having a, a BAME development program. I, I, think, I think the time for that has passed. That's been done for the last 15 years. Has it changed anything? maybe the power of one or, or, or two. But again, you walk into that boardroom, has it worked? No, it hasn't. It's not easy. And so what also is happening is that people are looking for easy solutions, looking for shiny objects. Let's do blind CVs. Let's do diverse panels. Let's do unconscious bias training. And all they're doing is focusing on the medicine without actually having diagnosed is that stomach pain and ulcer, gas, food poisoning, or whatever. And the medicine part is easy. You know, fixing the people it doesn't work. You actually have to fix the method by which you reach your decisions. And then that will change. That will change on its own. The women don't need fixing. The BAME people don't need fixing. The LGBT people don't need fixing. The disabled people don't need fixing. If all these people are finding your talent and your development and your resourcing uh, process is problematic, I would suggest logic dictates the problem is the process. But I think things that can help, I think holding managers accountable for driving ethnic diversity is critical. In the same way that we have done around gender and we ha organisations have targets and goals in place, we should feel comfortable to do similar things if, uh, around ethnic diversity. I also think that unless we're having real honest conversations about diversity, then it's very difficult to move the agenda forward. One of the things that we're doing in our organisation at Bloomberg is that we're having inclusion dialogues. And those dialogues are about bringing people together on topics that are difficult and uncomfortable and sensitive and challenging. And we've started one on race and it was incredibly successful and it spearheaded a whole load of activities off the back of it. David, I wanted to ask you about this because this is the nitty gritty, isn't it, for practitioners 
Do you agree with Mark that the time for mentoring and development programmes is over? Because a lot of organisations are just getting started. They think that's the way forward. I think the time for anyone thinking that's a holistic and effective solution in isolation is definitely over. Do I think they're bad things in and of themselves? Absolutely not. But I think it's far too easy for organisations to select a few initiatives, put them on a PowerPoint slide and put them in the board report and not actually deal with some of the root cause and some of the broader issues that are uglier, trickier, require more effort, energy and thought to walk towards. So the sort of things like this, I was interested in those inclusion dialogues that um, Pamela mentioned at Bloomberg's. What did you think? It's great. I think Blue, actually what Pamela's doing at Bloomberg is phenomenal. She's really leading the way in this space. And they are getting results. Um, I think in terms of what to do, I don't think this stuff is difficult at all. Because the wonderful thing about uh, uh, inequality is you see what works for the few that are privileged. So we have a clear template in terms of what breeds success. So if we look at what we're doing for elite white men in our society, that tells us, oh, in terms of human untapping human potential, these are the steps. Let's just start doing that for everybody else. It's not complicated. It really isn't. We know we're giving them the right level of education at an early enough age. We know that once they get into our, universi- our universities, again, they are then developing the networks. And we know that once they are in organizations, that they are being promoted at a rate that's fair. for Well, not always, but they're being promoted. And so I think we know what works. Let's just do the same for everyone else. And I think the wonderful thing about the world of work is this is where we can get this stuff right. We spend most of our time there. And actually, the benefits in terms of economically are quite clear quite quickly. So what do you want to see from employers? Do you want to see blind CVs? Do you want no, to... You I, no, I don't think blind CVs are the way. I think what I want to see from employers is first to understand why this is necessary. Secondly, to make sure that their organisations understand it too, so that everybody... Because usually it's the mid-level that you get the problem. You're able to get the BAME talent through the door and then something happens at the mid-level and they hit a glass ceiling. So you really need to identify what's going on there. How do we change that so that those people are able to progress and we're actually able to retain that talent? What about sponsors higher up the organisation? That's important, but the problem is usually the leadership isn't always a problem. Usually the leadership wants to get this right. It's the mid-level that the problem happens at. So I think, of course, the leadership is important, but you've got to make sure that the rest of the organisation also understands that it matters. I suppose my only challenge to that is that quite often leaders set the tone for the organisation. So if leaders genuinely show that they care, and they care enough not just to deal with it at a superficial level Mm. or express support, but actually to go in and sort out the challenge at that middle level, that's where you'll really make a difference. Yeah. Let's talk about regulation, because we've just had, you know, the audit on gender pay and the the gap there, which produced some fascinating (laughs) results. Um, Well, certainly fascinating from the point of view of a woman. Um, Should the government make it a statutory requirement for employers to publish data in the same way on ethnicity? Yes. I think we have to just not leave it to the best wishes and intentions of the organizations of what they're going to do. I think we have to mandate that the ethnic um, pay gap is also published because unless we expose that and shine light on it, 
it's not going to be addressed. I absolutely believe that the government should start to um, make it statutory requirement to publish data on ethnicity. I just can't see how else we're going to move this agenda forward. Organisations will be stuck in this space of feeling uncomfortable unless they are forced to do something about it. Um, I'm not sure that would make a difference. If we were to do a race pay gap report, it would just look worse because um, there are far less ethnic minorities at the top of, of organizations than there are women. Are companies going to rush to sign up to that? I don't think so. So I'm not sure that that is the solution. The solution will come from the customers, the clients, the external focus who say, we want to know or we're not buying your service. We're not using your service. That's, that's when you will see you know, real real change. We just need to do something because frankly, I fear that my children will come into the workplace and we will still be in the same place. Well, that is a really grim thought, isn't it? Pamela saying that you know, she thinks her kids are going to get to working age and it's going to be just like it is now. So she says, yes, we need mandatory reporting. So does Frank. Mark says, no, it's going to put employers off. What do you think? I think we definitely need that. I think we need mandatory reporting uh, in terms of pay, but also in terms of progression. Because I think where BAME is concerned, progression actually is an even bigger problem. Um, so I think we definitely need that. We have to. I think the attention that gender pay gap reporting drew to a systemic, sustained issue that was almost a scandal that we understood but didn't pay enough attention to i think there's a similar thing happening here but actually probably on a more profound level so i would wholeheartedly support it i haven't actually checked out what the crpd stance on this is yet <laughs> so um, well, we know what your stance uh, apolo- is. apologies to anyone else in the organization that i've now committed to it um but i i absolutely think that the only way that you get attention paid to some of these things is to show the stark reality of them and it would be a good mechanic for that and I would actually like to see the reporting dealt with in a slightly more thorough nuanced way than we have with gender pay gap mm, reporting as well. That's a good point. What What do you mean? So I think um, there were certain uh, quirks uh, with gender pay gap reporting including things like people excluding partners or actually in media um, self-employed contractors things like that. Which is I, the bulk of the industry of course. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Let's <laughs> genuinely look at who are the people that are being employed by organizations and what's the breakdown in payment for them and let's get right to the heart of those issues and also let's not let companies off the hook if this Mm. happens to be the case year after year Mm. so um there are challenges around from an hr practitioner's report uh kind of point of view how some of those figures are put together but actually I think the more detail that we get so there is no question and there is no gap that an organization can step into and go oh but it's not quite like that get people to publish it so we know it is quite like that and it is unacceptable and you think that data will drive the sort of societal change that Mark was talking about you know contractors consumers clients saying well what are you doing about this the organizations they interact with the media has a role to play And I think we saw that with gender pay gap. Uh, It made good headlines. Good headlines make for good conversations. And in fact, having something, to to use your word, other, having an actually slightly remote concept of it that you can talk about the fairness of makes it sometimes a bit easier to have the conversations then and how they apply to your immediate surroundings. That's so true. Very true. We're out of time, but a really good discussion. Thank you both very much indeed. David D'Souza, June Sarpong. Our thanks also to Pamela Hutchinson from Bloomberg, Frank Douglas, the diversity consultant, and Mark Lomas from HS2 for their really excellent insights too. Thanks very much for listening. 